It's Monday, December 18th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. When running for office or in office, you're faced with total scrutiny. But when you're a retiring senator, a Joe Manchin type, you can say a whole lot of things and not get attention unless the gist notices. Here he was on CNN's State of the Union yesterday. Jake, every one of us have gone to a sporting event or to a concert event or some some other activity. And you know, sometimes we found out they're sold out. I'm sorry. Then you have to plan better. Go back the next time. Make sure that you're able to get a seat. That's kind of the simplistic way of where we are today. We are sold out. Sold out as one might be to the coal industry. But overall, fact check is true. That is a simplistic way of looking at immigration. And a somewhat, I don't know, visitor from Neptune way of looking at going to a concert. Or, as he says, a concert event. I kid, I kid. Maybe somewhat infelicitous phrasing. But precise verbiage aside, the American people are pretty much in agreement with Houseboat Joe on these issues. And I bring it up because it's hard to talk about immigration. Can't even say immigration. Now it's all migration. That's fine. But people get impassioned and often they step in it. Take Illinois NAACP President Teresa Haley. Here she is on a Zoom call talking about the influx of immigrants being bussed from the border to Chicago. That these immigrants have come over here, they've been raping people. They've been breaking into homes. They're like savages as well. They don't speak the language and they look at us like we were crazy. Haley had a good explanation for those words, as reported by ABC Chicago affiliate. Haley denied making the comments to ABC 7 political reporter Craig Wall, suggesting the video was fake, saying, quote, with AI, anything is possible. And you can't spell prevarication without AI. On the show today, another guy who talked intemperately about immigration. His words got him compared to Hitler yet again. Fellow's name is Donald Trump. Get to know him. But first, as political movements within governments go, few have been as impactful and decisive as the squad, who we typically think of as AOC, Ilan Omar. I feel like I should announce this to some walk-up music or some rousing stadium fair. AOC, Ilan Omar, Ayanna Presley, Rashida Tlaib, and the newest members, Jamal Bowman, Corey Bush. They're the left's version of the House Freedom Caucus, and they too have used their power to influence legislation in favor of their political leanings. Ryan Grimm is a journalist out with a new book about them. He's a man of the left. The quality of the journalism in the book is quite good. We know that, for instance, to orient you, if you get a contratem between members of AOC's office and Nancy Pelosi's office, you'll mostly get the AOC side, but that's fine. Do with that what you need to. Many facts and bits of analyses are presented in The Squad, AOC, and the hope of a political revolution. Ryan Grimm up next.
This is Jess Betancourt, the host of DNA ID, the only true crime podcast that exclusively covers cases solved using forensic genealogy. DNA ID goes behind the headlines to answer your questions about this remarkable new crime-solving tool, how it works, how cases are selected, why the cases were unsolved for so long, and how the justice system is addressing it. I include input from law enforcement to give you the inside scoop that we all crave with a straightforward, no-nonsense delivery. You can find DNA ID on any podcast platform. Episodes come out weekly on Mondays. The election and ascension of AOC and Rashida Tlaib and Ilan Omar and Ayanna Presley, collectively called the squad, which would come to expand, was a demarcation of something. It was a movement. It was youth. It was politics. But what has it become? The inside story of the squad and really leftist politics on mostly a national level is chronicled by Ryan Grimm really excellently in a new book called The Squad, AOC and the Hope of a Political Revolution. Ryan, welcome to The Gist. Oh, thanks for having me on here, Mike. What material benefits can you most point to that the squad has delivered to their constituents or America as a whole? I mean, the American Rescue Plan is probably the place where uh, everyone felt the advent of the squad most securely. And this is a story that I think is told for the first time in this book that so some of this people will remember because it happened in public. Uh, other elements of it happened behind the scenes. But so you remember when toward the end of 20, the 2020 election, uh, they Congress passed another uh, rescue plan, basically COVID rescue plan. And they included $600 checks at the behest of uh, who was it? Uh, Josh Hawley and Bernie Sanders. Yes. After they the bill, after the bill passes Congress, Ch- uh, Trump jumps in and he's like, the checks should have been $2,000. This is too weak. And so immediately, um, AOC drafts an amendment and she goes on Twitter and, she, and she's like, agree with Trump. You know, when he's right, he's right. And she writes an amendment that says uh, we're adding $1,400. What she also did, which nobody noticed at the time, is that she moved the uh, amount that dependents got up to $1,400 as well. It used to be, you know, if you gave $600 to the, you know, the, the parents, the you know, the dependents would get like $300 and, and adult dependents would be excluded. So she included adult dependents and upped the number and made it equal. So now a family of four was going to get an additional $5,600. Then Mitch McConnell, I'm sure to his everlasting regret, uh, said, no, we're not going to vote on this. And Chuck Schumer saw electoral gold and they went down to Georgia and they said, they said, quite honestly, like if you would give us two Democrats out of Georgia, and you knock the gavel out of Mitch McConnell's hands, these checks will go out the door. And you've never seen a situation like this before where voters were asked, like, do you want (laughs) $2,000? Well, you've seen it in like most (laughs) Chicago elections pre-1900. Sorry, pre-1990. That's true. Well, you get the money ahead of time in those elections. That's, that's, That's to go out and vote. This, and they were they were actually kind of clever about it because they were like, we don't we know that you are not personally this cynical and you would not just vote for two thousand dollars for yourself. But think about all the people in your life who do need that two thousand dollars. So do this as an act of charity for them. And so yes. then they, they get elected uh, that money the AOC's amendment just gets attached to it. So not only does the fourteen hundred dollars get in there. As written, the 1400 that goes to the dependents gets written too. Then 
you have this uh, fracas with the $15 minimum wage getting you know stripped out of of the senate bill right there was there was so much the anger parliamentarian ruled the on parliamentarians it parliamentarians as in a one-line ruling says you can't do this yeah. bernie sanders puts it on the floor but because the parliamentarian messed with it you now need 60 votes they, he only had 48 so everybody's livid and everybody's like who, who on who on earth is this get get out of here with this parliamentarian this is nonsense <laughs> nobody voted for her like we get out and so Manchin then starts coming back and saying, these these checks are too big. They're going to go too many people. And the unemployment benefits that Bernie and the squad are pushing for are just way too generous. I, I hate this stuff. We need, to, we need to peel this back. But because there was so much anger you know, from the squad publicly about $15 minimum wage and, and also from the public more generally, what happened was that Jayapal, who is the chairwoman of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, was able to go to Schumer with a credible threat and, and told Schumer, if you cave to Manchin on this stuff, there's so much anger out there that I'm going to lose the squad. She's not saying, like, I'm going to lead opposition. She's going to say, it's not up to me. Like, they're going to bolt. And you have such a slim margin that you can't, you can't do this. Like, if you, your entire bill will go down. And Schumer went to Joe Manchin when, he, when Manchin came asking for all of these cuts and said, look, I can't do it. I would do it if I could do it, but I can't. So you need to figure out, do you want to take this whole bill down or not? And Manchin eventually comes back and basically caves. He, yeah. he, he got some little tiny tweak about um, un how unemployment insurance is handled when it comes to taxes or something like that. And just he just walked away. And the whole, the whole bill went through. That, that's a very like concrete way. Sure, checks. Pe people saw money in their in bank account. accounts. Checks in your account. Yeah. Okay, so that gets to some of uh, the squad slash AOC's accomplishments. It gets to some of her method. But the other, the original anecdote, she saw a tweet by Trump. She immediately jumped on it. And this is uh, reactivity to the online sphere. It's what made her. But so often in the book, th social media works to the detriment of the people in her circle hmm. and I would say the squad in general. And... There are a couple dynamics behind this. Uh, obviously, she wouldn't have even gotten elected without her expert use of social media. Mm -hmm. But then when in office, and you chronicle this, she had key staffers who were absolute sure. bomb throwers. And <laughs> she either she either um, instructed them or allowed them or just didn't ride herd over her staff. She had a different conception of what her job would be as the leader and executive of the staff than almost everyone else in Congress. And I think, I mean, this is more than the impression I got from your reporting. I learned this did not work out for her. And then there's another yeah. part of it where so often in your book, there's a huge fight, a huge conflagration, and people associated with her or people that she's arguing with go way too far on Twitter. And then it's characterized or described as they got mad at some tweets. I think that phrase shows up more than once over <laughs> more than one incident. Well, I, I think I have, I think I have it here. 
This is uh, actually about Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren fighting essentially about Bernie bros. You guys have been initiating for months these kind of sly hits on us on Twitter. Like, wait a minute, what? How does that even compute? So you're upset about some mean tweets and then you go out and call him a sexist. This phrase, you get upset about some tweets like it doesn't matter. You know, tweets are the opinions and of staffers. Therefore, they reflect on the leader of the staff. They're seen by millions of people. They got her elected, but they're dismissed when they don't uh, go in her favor. That's a fair point, and that's that's like a burn. That, that was a Bernie Warren a battle that was playing out during the the uh, during the primary. But you're right that there, there's an there's an interesting uh, kind of uh, contradiction where people very much understand the power of social media uh you see you see it uh over and over uh over overpower like what you would call quote-unquote real life debates twitter's not real life twitter's twitter's more powerful than real life in a lot of ways uh but then when you want to dismiss it yeah you call it some some tweets or some some mean tweets uh you saw that a lot even during the trump administration when i'd cover congress and uh trump would you know tweet something completely insane, like that he's going to nuke North Korea or, you know, what, whatever, you know, the, the constant things that he was saying. And then you would go and then you'd have Hill reporters go to Republicans constantly and get them to comment, you know, do you endorse this like, you know, maniacal thing that the president just said publicly? And they'd be like, ah, I'm not commenting on tweets. <laughs> or the great, you know, I it's, didn't it's, read them. Yeah. yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah. Or I didn't read those tweets. It's like, and, and, it's it's an effort to use the form that the statement was made to kind of drain that statement of the meaning that it that it very clearly has because you because you, you would rather just not not confront it. But yeah, the situation with the staff that first six months was was fascinating, and, and Dan Riffle, one of the aides, talks about it later, um, where he's like, we the staff and she kind of had a different conception about what we were doing. Like it was their genuine understanding that she wanted the staff, you know, throwing these bombs um, because that was going to create the space for this, this kind of movement and this energy inside, inside the house that it was going, that that was going to kind of leverage the strength that they had. They only had four people, but if all of the staffs are also like making names for themselves and, and blowing things up, then they, they just seem stronger and are stronger publicly. Cause then it's, it becomes four members against this entire uh, caucus, but in, in the battle of ideas, it's a one against one kind of yeah, struggle. It's a and force multiplier. A force yes. multiplier. That's that's well well put. That's what I was looking for. And and he says later, like, look, if 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 I would have been told as a staff member that's not what we're doing, then that's what I would have done. Like that's that's fine. Like I'm a I'm an aide. I'm here. I'm here for the mission of the office. And in the in the beginning, I think there was some, and probably some like hesitancy around the question of like. Is this the right strategy or not? And so, you just you just kind of had a muddling along with it for the first six months or so until basically Pelosi puts an end to it. Right, and it's not just how fiery the staff was. She AOC, uh, as you chronicle, uh, seems to have, and she's young. She's twenty eight. She shouldn't be assumed to come in 
and have been fully formed with all of these skills. But in terms of managing an office, there are incidents where she would say yes to so many requests to show up. And then when it came time to actually show up to a meeting or do an event, she not only wouldn't want to go, she would ever she would deny that she ever said yes. So the staff instituted a policy where they would literally document, create a paper trail to prove to her later that she said yes. She had policies of once she goes into her apartment for the night, she's not coming out, but that maybe is not the best policy for a young congresswoman who wants to create a revolution. You do chronicle so many, many ways in which acknowledging her gifts and acknowledging that, you know, as you certainly agree, she's right on the issues in terms of the bureaucratic job of being a congresswoman. uh, There were lots of flaws, especially in the beginning, right? And you could add to that, that Members like her are are set up to fail in the sense that, uh, like I, when I asked, like you know, if, what do you what do you what do you say to the to the the criticism that like she didn't you know she wouldn't call you know she didn't call members of some members of Congress back or didn't call them back fast enough. Which, by um, the way, staff. seems like, okay, fine. This is apparently a huge thing with members of Congress. Right, apparently, it's yes. That's the other thing. It's such a high school thing um, that you can easily step on toes that you don't know you're stepping on. But one, one, one staffer pointed out, like, look, it's, it's physically impossible. Like, the number of, the, the amount of incoming that she was getting from zero to 60, from bartender in, in you know, the spring, practically, um, to global celebrity in the summer uh meant that there were there were heads of state from around the world that wanted time with her uh and there's only so much time in the day and so you just there you just literally can't pull it off physically but also you have just this tiny budget for this tiny staff and you're not only have to handle all everything on the national level the, the media appearances the the national and then the international level but then you also have the local level. You've got to set up your offices. You've got to do constituent service. And you're doing all this with, with a handful of people and, and also no experience. You know, her, 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 she had been an intern in uh, Senator Ted Kennedy's office, I think, during college. Uh, but otherwise, had you know, this is all, this is all brand new. Right. So lest listeners think that we can all put this in the category of you're in the job interview and someone asks you, what are your flaws? And you say, I care too much and overextend myself. (laughs) She came in, and this gets to a fundamental aspect of her personality that I hadn't seen um, chronicled like I had in your book, that she comes in very much looking to pick fights with everyone. Maybe that's not the generous way of saying it. Maybe she would say to you know, bring about change and to give voice to the voiceless or whatever. But she does pick fights with a lot of people and she occupies Nancy Pelosi's uh, office and she aligns with the Sunrise Movement, which they themselves get in fights. And she has mainly these two staffers who are, you know, tearing apart Hakeem Jeffries and Nancy Pelosi (laughs) on Twitter. And then she's not getting back to people. And then she's, um, you know, overscheduling herself and then denying it. But the aspect of the personality is, She is a revolutionary. She very much wants to upend the system. She does not shy away from a fight. But on the other hand, she genuinely wants everyone to like her. You write at one point, whereas her colleague Ilan Omar thrived on conflict as long as it was somewhat within her control, Ocasio-Cortez was deeply conflict-averse 
a painful trait for a radical in Congress. Yeah, Corbin Trent, uh, who was our communications director and the Justice Democrats founder, who had a falling out with her, um, but still admires you know a lot of a, a lot of elements of her. Talked talked a lot about this, um, and would he you know he he would argue to her like the one of the lines he would use with her was you know you're you're never gonna make yourself small enough that they're gonna forgive you. Like his point was. You beat Joe Crowley. Yeah. You came in from the outside. Like that alone is 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 going to make it so that they see you as a threat forever. The the occupation of Nancy Pelosi's office, then coupled with, you know, soon after that she joins Justice Democrats with Rashida Tlaib or a phone call where they they encourage people to run for office. And to her, that's just basic civic, your basic civic duty is to Get a get a pencil and a clipboard. Get some signatures together. Run for office on the values that you hold, and and work to work to make the change that you want to see in the country. Like, what what on earth could possibly be wrong or offensive about that? To the incumbent members of Congress, that that alone, even if none, even if nobody took up her offer to run for Congress against incumbent Democrats, that alone was a how dare you moment. Yeah. Uh, she then did not endorse a whole lot of challengers. Like she really picked her battles, but she did endorse against, eventually against the Ways and Means chairman, Richie Neal. Uh, she endorsed against Henry Cuellar. Um, she endorsed against uh, Lipinski and, and Daniel Lipinski won that race, hel- helped elect Marie Newman. Um, she did not endorse uh, Cory Bush, but Cory Bush, her friend, wins. Right. So, um, so far, one for four, essentially. Right, yeah. and so and so it creates this situation where the the people to her left are frustrated that she's not more robustly supporting a lot of these challenges, and so Corbin Trent would say, "You've got it." He had a he had a quote um, where he said, "You know, why are we fucking with people if we're not going to fuck with people? Mm-hmm. Like, either go all in and team up with Bernie and the squad and raise a lot of money and go district to district." And, f- and go full-on revolution and, and try to upend Congress or play the full inside game. Yeah, if you're playing hearts, you got to shoot the moon or not. And it's not going to, and his point would be, it's not going to work. They're, they're always going to hate you, even if they're nice to your face. Yeah, um, I can understand why he would say that. You know, that's his predilection and personality. Right. So, right. But also all of the, I think all of the flamethrowing staffers who maybe were more of that ilk, they were all men, right? They were, yeah. Yeah, and the whole being small thing and being liked seems very gendered. Yes, and and you 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 had a lot of her colleagues who would say like, you know, why are you letting these loud, angry dudes like steal your spotlight? Why was she? Like they they didn't win. Why do you think she was? I think that she, uh, you know, I think that she, um, really, you know, she. she really does want transformational change like she liked the, she was a huge supporter of bernie sanders like she did think that the democratic party was you know corrupt and like needed to be really challenged in a in a serious way so i think like a significant part of it was this is good like we need to do this um that we need to shake this up yeah my critique 
putting aside policy, just in terms of methodology, and I understand the psychology involved, and I under I acknowledge I just literally acknowledge the sexism. It does. It didn't really seem to be working for her. She would take these truculent positions and didn't always do so with the most truculent rhetoric, but she would take these forceful, radical positions. And then sometimes they would work, sometimes they didn't. It clearly took, had an enormous cost. And then she would muse in public about those costs and about quitting Congress. And I think she texted to you, maybe I'll just go back to grad school. So just based on the age-old psychological question, how is that working out for you? Was it? I, I mean, I think it's certainly better than what had been working before. Like, you know, she, she she's talked poignantly about, you know, how difficult her time, ten, years of, of waiting tables and tending bar um, in, in unions, you know, the Union Square restaurants. Um, but, and so compared to that, definitely. Um, but yes, like, I think that there there's a real difficulty of you know being in a position where you know you are you know constantly being cast as this rebel or this revolutionary um and when you you uphold those values but you want to be understood as somebody who's here to make the world a better place like you're 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 here to help you're not here to burn the place down and that is Ryan Grimm. We've been talking to him about his book, The Squad, AOC and the Hope of a Political Revolution. The revolution is not over. Neither is our conversation. So we did talk about AOC a little bit. Don't fear. Tomorrow, Ryan will be back and we'll talk about other members of the squad. The whole movement. Don't miss that. And now the spiel. There's a debate about how to cover Donald Trump in the circles that like to debate about how to cover Donald Trump. My analysis is to pay attention to what he says, check it against what it means that he'll do, and hope that Americans care. Another strategy is don't report the polls, report that he's going to be a dictator. Seems kind of specific, what to leave out, what to leave in, but this has gotten quite a bit of traction. Now, I would say... Doesn't knowing that the would-be dictator is up by Biden by four points everywhere except Michigan, where it's up by eight, doesn't that actually tend to underline the stakes of the nomination? I don't know. It's informative to me. When I told you the polls, did you say, no, no, you just softened the ground for Trump, Mike? Anyway, the don't cover the horse race message, which is as omnipresent a critique as you get of presidential and all political races doesn't exactly tell us how we should cover the supposed burgeoning dictatorship. One way seems to be scrutinizing Trump's speech for Hitler-esque echoes. A few weeks ago, it was this. We pledge to you that we will root out the communists, Marxists, fascists, and the radical left thugs that live like vermin within the confines of our country. Which led to this. The use of the word but, but, vermin. But Kristen, are you comfortable with clear. that term? But are you comfortable with that term, Governor? 
let me let me just say on the DOJ. Well, first of all, I'm responsible for my what I say, and, and I say things differently. But on the DOJ and the with FBI, that term? Let's just, I mean, just, we have just seen. Just on my question, though, Governor. Excuse me. What I what I'm not what I'm not some of these other things. So do you condemn the use of the word the vermin? Be do you focused, condemn the use of the word vermin? I then I, I, I don't use the term. But what I don't do is play. And a couple days ago, Trump said this. They're poisoning the blood of our country. That's what they've done. They poison mental institutions and prisons all over the world, not just in South America, not just the three or four countries that we think about, but all over the world. They're coming into our country from Africa, from Asia, all over the world. They're pouring into our country. Which led to another round of do you decry, do you denounce, do you renounce? Jake Tapper put it to Chris Christie, who got the answer right as defined by his rational self-interest. South America, Africa, Asia, immigrants poisoning the blood of our country. The words of the leading Republican presidential candidate. Your response. He's disgusting. Kristen Welker put the question to Lindsey Graham, who also gave actually for him, based on Graham's priorities and interests of finance. Senator, Americans Senator just in on the language, just on the language, though, I want to get your response. You have endorsed former President Trump. Are yeah. you comfortable with him using words like that? You know, we're talking about language. I could care less what language people use as long as we get it right. And that's the important thing, right? Pull out the quotes, the outrageous bits of rhetoric, dwell on them. That's a public service. People got to know just who this Trump guy is. Only that list of countries that Trump doesn't want immigrants from, we know he thinks that. It, it's pretty famous. Using vulgar language, President Trump today questioned why the United States would allow people from Haiti and Africa into the country, describing those places using an expletive while suggesting people from Norway might be more acceptable. Shithole, the word you're looking for is shithole, Mr. Holt. And he called Baltimore like living in hell, and he used the word crime infested to describe the places where he thought members of the squad came from. And then as president, he said this. Out of the country, you wouldn't believe how bad these people are. These are people. These are animals. And we're taking them out of the Plus, there were all of his, you know, policies. And before he became president, the newspaper ads calling for the execution of since exonerated teens and the fines, all the fines paid by the Trump Organization for Housing Discrimination. So when ABC's deputy political director, Avery Harper, said on This Week This Week, and this is rhetoric that he continues to use on the trail. He has said this before. He's probably going to say it again. Uh, it is something that is uh, reminiscent of white nationalist language. And he is calling to dark parts of the Republican Party when he does this. And, and that's not something that folks are going to forget uh, come general election time. I want to say, you're acting like you've already forgotten. This is not new. Nor is the idea that being outraged by Trump's rhetoric will hurt Trump in any way. Trump's acolytes love the rhetoric. The press, by word policing him, plays into not only his contention that they want to censor him, and by extension you, it also draws attention to the issue. Words like vermin and the blood of the country shouldn't be ignored. It definitely should be mentioned disapprovingly in the third or fourth paragraph of the write-up of what Trump said. When Trump made his vermin remark, it wasn't picked up until he truth socialized about it. Here he is calling illegal immigrants vermin disgusting. 
Democrats wouldn't do that, but they also wouldn't call them illegal immigrants. Poisoning the blood, that is very Aryan. Democrats certainly can be mad over language, but what's their policy over immigration? Trump, even to a voter who's not necessarily in his thrall, but does want a solution to the immigration crisis, hears that Trump is talking tough on immigration. And the Democrats are talking tough about Trump talking tough. He's using bad words. So I guess a voter is to conclude, well, if that's the Democrats' priority or major point, they want to let us know they don't really have that much of a policy on immigration. They don't care as much as immigration. They certainly care a lot about what Trump says about immigration. And what he says about immigration is he's against the illegal kind, maybe some of the legal kind too. It's certainly a poor heuristic. It's not reading policy papers, but it does help Trump with voters who think illegal immigration is more of a problem than intemperate, even blatantly offensive speech about immigration. Everyone who here is poison and vermin as just another step down the path of autocracy is already convinced Trump is headed for autocracy. That is why the Washington Post, which was the first outlet to prominently tie Trump's rhetoric to the Axis powers, titled its November 13th article, Trump calls political enemies vermin, echoing dictators Hitler, comma, Mussolini. There are a number of reasons why he would use these evocations of Reichs gone by. Among them, Donald Trump's a horrible person. Also, he's pretty much the most irresponsible speaker with a huge platform, maybe in American history, and he would make a bad president. I say this because he was already a bad president. But there could be other reasons why he'd say these things, that he's bad, sure, that he loves the reaction, that he knows that talk of rats and blood is evocative language, just as the Washington Post itself knew that when they ran a full-page op-ed and Telenus's work titled, All the Republicans are Rats. It was December 2020, every attorney general who is helping Trump depicted as a long-snouted, scurrying piece of vermin. It is an attractive, a pointed, if you will, metaphor. This The Washington Post story, every other time someone talked about rats, it no way excuses Trump's bomb throwing, but it might imply that a word like vermin is not the biggest issue, which will expose Trump or browbeat those in Trump's parties. It's horrible. It's inexcusable, but it's all inexcusable. This isn't particularly new or worse or likely to change minds, but for the media, it's hard. It's very hard. They've pressed this buzzer before. They've gotten the reward of audience outrage, and they're left to wind their way through the intricate maze of covering the words that come out of Donald Trump. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is in charge. She heads up the Bureau of Special Projects. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, Jeeperu, Dupru. And thanks for listening. <laughs>